nations, so that even those in the farthest coastlands will fear your name and love your son. We pray tonight for the country of Turkey, where so much of the ministry of the Apostle Paul was focused, a land that now lies spiritually desolate. Revive your work in that place, O Lord. Pour out your spirit upon your people there. You know each one. Give them fearlessness to speak of Christ to their neighbors and empower their words by your spirit whenever they speak and cause eternal fruit to be born. Even though a turkey officially has religious freedom, O Lord, you know the situation on the ground is far different, that those who evangelize are threatened, intimidated, some have been killed. So, Lord, we ask you, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We ask that the two believers, Hakan Testan and Turan Topol, who have been arraigned for insulting Turkishness because they've evangelized, we ask that they would be acquitted. We thank you for the peace you've given them in this situation, for their testimony that their love for Christ and their assurance of Christ's love for them trumps all fear. Please quell the resurgence of Muslim fundamentalism in this country. We pray for the missionaries working among the Turks that you would grant them your protection as well as grace and wisdom to shepherd your little flock in that place. Add to that flock, we ask, through their gospel ministry, and please send more laborers into this harvest field. We pray that the many Turks living abroad will be reached with the gospel and bring it back home. We pray for the Kurdish population and the gospel workers among them. Build your church among the Kurds, we ask. We ask that you would prevent ethnic strife between them and the Turks. We ask for your protection of the Turkish Bible Society, that their bookstores would remain open and be protected from further vandalism. We pray for the country's president, Abdullah Gul, and his administration, that you would soften their hearts to the presence and influence of Christians in their country, and even to the gospel itself. Please grant that they would uphold the laws granting religious freedom, that your people there may lead, may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly in every way. So, Lord, please grant in the coming days that your word would run and have free course in the country of Turkey for your glory and for the glory of your Son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray one more time. Lord, as we come to your word, we want to renounce all boasting. We only boast in the cross. We, we do not want to think that somehow we have earned something because we are here on a Sunday night and others aren't. Or because we have thought hard about spiritual or doctrinal things. We do not want to boast because we have served in Your name. We do not want to boast because we have seen fruitfulness in this ministry, the church, families. Lord, our only boast is in You. Our great joy is not what we can do for You, but that You would call us to be your sons and daughters. 
not the service we do for the shepherd, but that you would allow us to be your sheep. So in the spirit of humility, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word, correct, reprove, encourage, train us in the way that we should go. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is 10-10-10, you realize, thank you, Alan Knapp's watch I'm sure went off at 10-10 this morning in the new members class. I didn't think that the sermon lent itself to pointing that out at 10-10. Today is also my son Jacob's fifth birthday. And uh, we don't usually announce birthday, but it's easy to remember this is a birthday bonanza in our church. Because I remember Jacob and Jenny Vanderway and Brad Beals and Helen Durrett and Brett Favre, I'm told, (laughs) not a member of our church. Uh, all have their birthdays today, 10, 10, 10. Jacob is the, the last in the season of birthdays for the six people in our family. starts with my wife in May, and then Paul and I in June, and Ian in July, Elsie in August. Hope you're writing this down. Just good notes just for us. And then finally... Six weeks after the last one, Elizabeth, is Jacob. So, poor guy, actually, nothing to feel sorry for him about at all, but he feels like a poor guy. He's been just waiting and waiting and waiting. And, uh, Mom, Dad, now is, is my birthday? No, you still have to wait till Elsie has her. Well, now, no. Is it the day after tomorrow? You know what? We'll tell you when your birthday is. We, we won't forget. Just waiting and waiting and seeing all of these presents Come for others and grandparents bring more presents and have you not any blessing for me, he wants to say. Is it coming? Is it coming? Maybe it's not coming. Well, it's finally come. The the false teachers in Peter's day should have been more like our children. Is it coming? Is it coming? They finally got to a point where they said it's not coming. Except it wasn't birthdays, of course, they were thinking about. It was the day of the Lord. They no longer believed that this day of the Lord, which is an Old Testament term, borrowed in the New Testament, it signifies the day when God would visit His people with salvation and with judgment. And here the accent is on judgment. They did not believe this day was coming And so, this allowed them to continue in their immoral lifestyle. After all, if mom and dad aren't going to come home, why do we have to obey the babysitter? So they just kept on going with their sort of licentious living, encouraging others in the same, because after all, nothing is ever going to happen. God is not going to show up. And I wonder how many of us, honestly, look for the day of the Lord. Remember a couple of good sermons that Pat has preached on this, encouraging us to be eager for the Lord's return. We certainly don't, most of us, look for the day of the Lord as we would for a birthday when we were five years old. We don't even look for it like a 20-year-old might look for marriage. Lord, when? Soon? I really, really want to get married? Really? Now? 
this year maybe, next year. We don't even look for it like a 30-year-old might look at retirement. Sort of, okay, it's there. I maybe have to make some decisions in the present based on that reality. It's still a long ways off, but it will come. Uh, This is the best analogy I could think of. It is probably, most of us look at it more like a Lions fan might look for the Super Bowl. They did win today. Uh, you, you sort of think, theoretically, it could happen, I suppose. I, you know, maybe in our lifetime, I suppose that's you know, technically possible. But you're not making plans next year. You're, you're, you're not you know, sort of wondering how you need to rearrange your schedule so you can get there for the Super Bowl. You know, deep down, it doesn't feel like something that's really ever going to happen. And I feel most of us probably look at the day of the Lord like that. Sort of out there, theoretically possible. Doesn't have a lot of bearing on our day-to-day lives. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's page 1019, the Blue Bibles. And this morning I introduced four questions that we're going to look at over the next four weeks. This is the last chapter in 2 Peter. And there are also, I think, four questions that arise out of this chapter. And we'll, we'll spread them out over three different sermons, which are going to be over several, different, several weeks because there will be different things, different folks preaching and prayer services and the like. Four questions, though, from these, this one chapter. How can we be sure the day of the Lord will come? Why has it not yet come? What will happen when it does come? And how are we to live in view of its coming? We're looking at just the first of those questions tonight. How can we be sure the day of the Lord will come? Follow along as I read from 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So look at what Peter is up to. He says, I'm writing a second letter. It's possible there is some lost letter we don't have, but barring any good reason for thinking that, I think we can assume he's referring to 1 Peter, the letter that he wrote. And here he addresses them as beloved. We've had a lot in chapter 2 about the false teachers, and we need to remember this letter is not to the false teachers. It is to his beloved saints about the false teachers. He warns of false teachers and he describes them so vividly, so unflatteringly because it's an act of love. 
as a shepherd to the sheep. They're his beloved. And so he warns them. And now he wants to remind them. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. We already saw this in chapter 1, verse 12. I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 13, I think as long as I am the body, that is before I die, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. So he says, look, you've heard this. You've been taught this. You've been established in this, but you need to hear it again. You need an undistorted view of things. Reminders. That's, that's why you come to church week after week. Many of you years. Some decades. Morning. Most of you evening. Why? Are you going to hear something you haven't heard ever before? Yeah, perhaps, but not that smart. You get reminders because we need to be reminded. Don't ever hesitate to remind people of truth. We often say, and I catch myself saying it sort of apologetically, well, I, I know you know this already. Yes, don't be obnoxious, but don't hesitate. People need to be reminded of, of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No matter how many times you hear the gospel, you leak the gospel, and people need to be reminded there is no condemnation if you are in Christ. They need to hear that when they're loaded with guilt. No matter how trite it may seem in the moment, it is not. And you, you need to remind each other of Romans 8.28. That God works all things to the good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Remind each other. And here, Peter wants to remind them of two things in particular. He says, the commandments of the Lord and Savior... Through your apostles. So he's saying the commandments of the Lord Jesus that you heard through your apostles. Your meaning the particular apostles that helped to found your church, establish you, taught you, evangelized you. Whoever those apostles were, you learned it from them, the commandments of the Lord. Namely, the commandments to godliness. You remember that. You, you received these commands. They no doubt taught them to obey everything Jesus had commanded. He also reminds them of the predictions of the holy prophets. The predictions from the Old Testament prophets about the end. I mentioned this this morning, but it's worth turning there now to Isaiah chapter 66. There are just dozens, probably hundreds of passages that speak to the day of the Lord... In one way or another, this is one of the most dramatic. Isaiah 66, this is page 626. Final judgment and glory of the Lord. So this is prophesied centuries before Christ. Verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariot like the whirlwind to render His anger and fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword will all flesh and those slain by the sword shall be many. In verse 18, I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory. Then he gives good news in verse 22, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And then he goes back 
and forth, salvation, judgment, in verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. These are the sorts of passages, Peter says, be reminded. The prophets were speaking of these things. Now the false teachers are coming in and saying there is no day of the Lord. Remember your Old Testament and all these words like Isaiah 66. And then he says, don't be surprised that scoffers will come. You see this in 2 Peter 3, verse 3. He says, this is to mark out the last days. Ever wonder, well, are we in the last days? You watch the news and what's going on in Israel or what's going on in the Middle East. There's a much simpler way. That's not a very good way. The Bible plainly tells us that we are and have been for 2,000 years in the last days. The last days arrived in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was the age that was, and, and now in this new age of the Spirit and of the Messiah, last days. So Acts 2, 17, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. He says, and in the last days, and he describes all the things that were then happening. 2 Timothy 3, 1, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Hebrews 1, verse 2, long ago in many ways and many times, God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. So they understood themselves to be in the last days. And Peter says, the scoffers is just a sign that they've arrived, that things are proceeding as God has planned. So listen, don't freak out when people oppose the truth. It's just... It's a good thing that happens in some of us. It means we care, we're passionate, and we get sort of agitated. And if you're like me, and I know I am, uh, if you're like me, you sort of, uh, you know, you you feel, somebody's got to make this all right. Why is this happening? Well, the Lord said that it would happen. There would be scoffers. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that wolves would come into the flock. Matthew 24, verse 11, Jesus says many false prophets will arise. 1 John 2:18, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So when we get agitated and we just want to scream out, that's, that's wrong, that's, that's wrong. It, it may be, but always remember God knows. And God knew there would be wrong. In fact, it is part of His plan. And so there's no danger that somehow God's plan will be thwarted. Even the presence of false teaching is according to God's design, how He predicted it. Now let's zero in here. What are they scoffing at? Well, you see in verse 4 what they say. It's nice because often in, in the New Testament we're sort of trying to guess at what the false teachers were saying. But here we have, if not a quote, at least a good summary that Peter gives us. They are saying, where is the coming of the Lord. Where is the promise of His coming? They're saying He hasn't arrived. God has not visited His people. There is no judgment. This, this, is, this is not going to happen. This is a big hoax. It's like in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. The people were saying, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. Jeremiah was warning that they would be taken into exile 
and punished. And the people said, hey, hey, Jeremiah, look, we're still here. Where's the word of the Lord? Ezekiel 12, 22. The days go by and every vision comes to nothing, the people said. There's nothing to this. They were cynics, these false teachers. They were cynics. Be, beware of, of cynicism in your life. It, it creeps up when you, when you stop praying. Why pray? Come on, I've, I've been burned by that before. Pouring myself out to God, expecting Him to answer. Why, why pray? That's a cynic. Someone tries to encourage you with the word. Ah, I've heard that before, thanks. I don't need your promises. I don't need your gospel. We don't always say it, but we sort of feel that this kind of cynicism creeping on. And it's like these teachers, the day of the Lord, the day, the day of the Lord. He does not intervene. Now, look, these teachers went even further. They, they were something akin to deists. Now, deists sort of arose in the Enlightenment. And there were some of these, these clergymen even who said, well... Yes, God made the world, but it's, it's like someone wound up a clock and you just let it go and watched it zoom on by like my son's new little Zuzu pet hamster and you push the little button and it just sort of skirts all around and sort of, that, that was God and just, they believe in a God, but he just lets the thing run and he, he doesn't step in after that. They were, there was something like this going on. You see what they say in verse 4? Ever since the fathers... This is speaking of the Old Testament patriarchs, the worthies of the Old Testament. Ever since these men fell asleep, that is, they died. You know, since Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Isaiah, remember all those people? They're all long gone, they're dead, and everything is continuing just as it has from the beginning of creation. They're saying, look, we've heard over and over there's some cataclysmic judgment coming. Nothing. Centuries. Nothing. Millennia. Nothing. Zephaniah 1.12. might want to just write this down. Zephaniah 1.12. This little verse tucked away that has been helpful to me over the years. It says this, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do Ill. You want a definition of spiritual complacency. There it is, Zephaniah 1.12. You're spiritually complacent. You're coasting. You've gone apathetic. You've grown cold. When you say in your heart, God ain't going to do anything good. He ain't going to do anything bad. God doesn't care. God doesn't act. God has become a God who is disinterested. That... That is a sign of spiritual complacency. Why obey? Why strive? Why fight? Why pray? Why do... Nothing bad coming my way from God. Nothing good going to happen either. And so there's no fight. There's no gratitude. There's no hope. There's no dreams. There, there's no fear and there's no delight. See, it is actually a, a better spiritual condition to be in to have some emotional volatility. Oh, God, why'd you do that? And joy, and now I'm confused, and I'm sad, and I'm a little bit angry. And, and sometimes those emotions need to be redirected. And, okay, don't, don't be angry at God, but th- there's a pulse, there's a life. This is no life. It's just complacency. Yeah, God won't do anything. 
these people, these false teachers, were not unlike those in our own day who speak of the fixed laws of nature. And some people will will talk about science and define it in such a way that by its very definition it cannot include God. Science is just observable, natural facts. Someone talks about a designer or something. Well, that's not science. Well, why not? Because I said that's not science. You just, you just define it out of the equation. There's just laws. It's just the way the world works. God, by definition, can have nothing to do with it. Sometimes we look at history this way. Uh, this is very subtle because I think it's dangerous to try to read current events and say, well, that tornado went there because God was doing that to those people and then that thing happened and that election means this. Now, that's, that's very difficult. But, but looking, back, looking back, we should certainly say God was involved. And sometimes we just describe things. Well, well, what happened in the Great Awakening? Well, there was these sociological factors and then this sort of happened and there's kind of an emotional thing going on and just group dynamics and leave God out. So these people, they, they didn't have a God who could intervene in history. They said God doesn't do that sort of thing. He hasn't done it. He won't do it. He's, he's certainly not on some cosmic end of history scale. And so they scoffed. Look, everything is just going to keep going. The immutable laws of nature. That's all we have going on here. But Peter says the scoffers were wrong. And he addresses this question. How can we be sure that the day of the Lord will come? He gives three reasons. Three reasons why the day of the Lord, we can be sure that it will come. You know, when I first started out in ministry, I read John Stott's book on preaching. And I remember him saying in there, you know, you work on a text and you're sort of cracking it with this golden hammer to try to figure out how it, the outline works. And no one does that better, did that better than Stott. And he said, it's amazing how often there really are three points in a sermon. And I found that to be true. And so of all you, as you listen to me preach, there really are three points in most sermons. It's a Trinitarian thing, I think. It's just God hardwiring the universe. Didn't, didn't someone sing once three is a magic number? Three, okay, reason number one. God created the heavens and the earth. Verse five, so he, he's, he's arguing now, how do we know there will be a day of the Lord? Verse five, four, they deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. In other words, creation. So he, he's got them. They just said, hey, look at nothing. God has not done anything since the beginning of creation. And Peter says, aha, you are deliberately overlooking something very important you just said. Creation. The fact that God creates shows that we have a God who intervenes. And he says, formed out of water and through water. Turn back to Genesis for just a moment. Just sort of walk through this and what, what Peter's talking about. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. And then verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep spirit of God hovering over the face of the water. So God out of nothing, ex nihilo, creates in the beginning, God, nothing else. He creates heavens and earth. Hebrews makes explicit that this was out of nothing. There was was nothing that existed save for God, and He spoke this into existence. But it was initially without form and void. So He created heavens and earth, and there it is, but it wasn't yet fashioned. It wasn't yet shaped. He, He called the sort of lump of clay into being and then needs to fashion it and shape it. And so you see in verse 2 that there is some kind of watery substance. There's darkness over the face of the deep, Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And then we read what he does with the waters. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, a sky, a firmament. Let it be separated the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, this is not trying to give a 21st century scientific account of what it creation, what it's made of. It's, it's, it's giving an observational account. Just like if you open up your paper, it's going to say what time there was the sunrise and the sunset. You know, oh, whoa, whoa, that, that, that's not right. Well, we all understand observation, the sun rises, the sun sets. So here also speaking of observationally, how, how they looked at the world, that there was this watery substance and God separated the waters from the waters so that there were the waters here on the earth, the seas, and then waters in the sky which is from that then rain and snow and hail would come. So there's this sort of water above the canopy and then there's this water on the earth. So when it says back in Second Peter that God formed the earth out of water, that's what he means. He first called into being what was not existent and then formed it out of water, separating the waters from the waters. And then Peter also says... He created through water. I think by that he means through the clearing of the water, then the ground appeared. So it was formed out of and through by this act of separating that God made the earth. And notice, going back to Second Peter, he says not just out of water and through water, but the end of verse 5, by the word of God. So he spoke and it was so. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of His mouth. Hebrews 1, 3. Christ upholds the universe by the word of His power. We can do a great study on just tracing out the word. We, we, it's one of those terms we just throw around. Hey, are you in the word? And coming to hear the word. Thanks for the word. We don't realize how loaded with, with meaning this is. Creation came by a word. The universe now, all, all of the, the, the particles of this building held together 
the entire universe to millions of light years, all cohering right now because Christ wills it to be by His Word. And then you think, Peter says, in 1 Peter 1, that the Gospel preached is the Word. No wonder Isaiah 55 says, the Word does not return empty. No wonder it was such a big deal that John 1 says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and Jesus is now the Word made flesh. God created by this Word. I think Christians often overestimate the importance of how long ago the universe was created. But you cannot exaggerate how important it is that God created. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Any sort of system that has God as less than the sovereign creator is sub-biblical. In fact, if you had just Genesis 1-1, and all of you probably have it memorized, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Say it with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you realize in that one verse what a massive sort of worldview shift you're, you're getting there? There's probably dozens, but I can think of at least three Massive realities right there in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One of those realities is you have a creator-creature distinction. In the beginning, God created. So, this stuff is not God. We are not all one. There is a distinction. There was God, and then there was stuff because God made the stuff. There's a distinction between the Creator and between the creation. I was talking with one gentleman a couple months ago, and his sort of theory of false teaching that's permeating our culture, he calls it the difference between oneism and twoism. It's a little confusing, but all he means is sort of a pagan worldview is oneism. Everything is one. Creation, Creator, gods, everything, we're all... And you actually find that in a lot of movies. Seems like it's an avatar, haven't seen it. It's sort of all one in this nature. So whereas Christianity is, is twoism. There, there is a Creator and then there is a creation. A second massive reality, worldview in Genesis 1.1. God is a God who intervenes in the world. So he created, he made something out of nothing. He is involved. A third reality. Nothing is too hard or too big for God. So you got that one verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know a lot of things already. You don't know the gospel, but you know that there is a God and he's different from his creation. You know that the God is involved in his creation. And you know that nothing is too hard for this God. So the first reason we can be sure of the Lord's coming is God created the heavens and the earth. Second reason, God sent the flood. Verse 6, 
And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So Peter says, God created the world through water and the word. He says he used those very two things, water and the word, to then destroy that world. He sent the flood. The world that then was, it sure sounds like a global flood. The world as they knew it perished. The slate was wiped clean. They started over. It wasn't that the planet was annihilated. It wasn't like God sort of, you know, sent out from the Death Star to blow up Alderaan or something, you know. That wasn't an annihilation and it's it's just gone. It was a, a cleansing. It was a destruction of... First of all, the wicked humans and and also had other ramifications on plants, animals, nature. So there's there's a, a difference there. There's a distinction between the world that was and the world that is. Now, I, I point that out just to sort of get you thinking for next week when we come to the text about sort of the end of the world, when it talks about the world being dissolved and destroyed, and you try to think through, well, what, what does that mean? I don't think it means that this, this planet is just annihilated. But it does mean there's some pretty radical discontinuity. So it, if you picture creation like a, a masterpiece on an Etch-A-Sketch, the flood didn't smash the Etch-A-Sketch, but it, it shook the whole thing up. And now we're getting a different picture that God is going to create. That's what he did with the flood. But turn back to Genesis just one more time, to Genesis chapter 9. Because we have a lot to learn from the flood. It gives us a picture of, of what God means by destruction and then recreation. Have you ever noticed in Genesis 9 how deliberate Moses, the author, is in showing us that God is, is doing a, a new creation? So Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you green plants, I give you everything. Then down in verse 6, speaks of being made in God's image. And then verse 7, the command again, Be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. What's God doing? He's reasserting the creation ordinances. He's telling them again, you have food. You're made in my image. Be fruitful and multiply. He's saying, okay, we're doing Genesis 1 again. Except sin has already entered the world. So in that same way then, the flood destroyed the world. And Peter says, we also will see our world destroyed so that God can start a new creation. The point that he wants to make is that if the flood is true, then future judgment is also true. I mentioned a popular Christian teacher this morning. I'll quote from him again. It's Brian McLaren. I don't think any of you read him. I hope that you don't. He says, for example, for me today, the Noah story in which God wipes out all living things except one boatload of refugees, has become profoundly disturbing. 
And he says, I'm not trying to defend the view of God in the Noah story as morally acceptable, ethically satisfying, or theologically mature. It's a popular Christian author. He's the one who, who says, well, that was a primitive view of God, and, and our view has since evolved. Well, we're all the way here to one of the last books of the Bible, and Peter is still saying, you know that flood thing? That happened? And that has bearing on the future. Same God. It's anchored in history. This flood happened, therefore something like it will happen again. Third reason, finally, that we know the day of the Lord is coming. Peter says, God has the heavens and the earth stored up for fire. Verse 7. By the same Word, the Word that created Through water, the Word that sent the water in the flood, by the same Word, He has the heavens and the earth stored up for fire. Because remember, God promised to Noah, never again would I destroy the world with a flood. Not by water this time, but by fire. It could be a metaphorical use. You know, I I said this morning that I think that the fires of hell is is a metaphor but it's a striking metaphor because it means hell is that bad. Here I think it's probably literal. Why do I think that? Well, one, because it's in parallel with the flood. The flood was real water destroying the real planet. So I think unless we have a good reason, we should think this is real fire. And then the language in verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth. So this, this is concrete Creation language. Yes, fire can be a metaphor for God's judgment, but the fact that he says the heavens and the earth, this, this stuff, you know, that I talked about God creating, just like it was wiped out with a flood, it will be destroyed by fire. By the same word. God is, is waiting to give the word. He can make it rain water. He can make it rain fire. There is a coming day of judgment and destruction. Not just humans, the whole planet will be affected. You think the Lord, and we'll get to this next week, why He's he's waiting. But this is not hard for God. It's not hard that, that He's sort of, well, if... If URC would just get their act together, then we'd really be ready to to go. He says, by His Word, it's stored up. It's ready. Just like He told Lazarus, come forth. All He has to say is, come forth, fire. It's ready. The heavens and the earth are stored up for judgment, and when He speaks the Word, it will come. So the scoffers are wrong. The day of the Lord will come. We have a God involved in the universe because He created it. A God who has judged the world before in the flood. And a God who is biding His time before He will judge the world again. And so what does this mean for us? I don't want to jump ahead to verses 11 and following where we get the so what. But we do need to at least have something of of an application. So... Just do this little mental exercise here. 
if the coming day of the Lord is going to be akin to the flood in Noah's day, just try to put yourself back there as, as the water rained down. You know, Moses or, or Noah was a preacher of righteousness and mocking him with the boat. They knew, well, here it comes. And then it rained. What do you think the first day is? Well, you had to rain sometime, Noah. Second day. Hey, it's rained two days before. Three days. Okay? Stuff's getting muddy. It's going to stop for five. How long? Ten days? Twenty? How long before they said, this is not good? Forty days and forty nights. So, so as it kept raining, day after day, and, and it started to click in one brain after another. Noah was right. He was right. What what do you think they thought? Because what what they wish they knew is probably what we wish we would know before the day of the Lord. Number one, I bet they thought we shouldn't mock those building boats. Meaning, those who were looking for a deliverer, those who knew they needed salvation, they they were the smart ones. Number two, perhaps they thought today doesn't matter if you don't have tomorrow. We're not guaranteed how many tomorrows. Prepare to live your life now in such a way that you will not be ashamed of it on the other side of judgment. Third, I wonder if person after person began to think as it rained day after day, you know what? Maybe Moses is sane And the rest of the world is crazy. You ever feel like, man, nobody thinks like this. There are not too many people here. I don't want to exaggerate that we're persecuted, but might you think that no one believes this sort of gospel, no one this this sort of judgment and it's so so strange in our day. And you begin to think, my nuts. Well, as the waters rose, imagine they thought maybe it was those eight people that had it right and the rest of the world was crazy. And fourth, I imagine they felt very strongly we should have taken God at His word. We should have taken God at His word. Believing that God sees, God knows, God cares. God intervenes for good and for ill. He can be for you or against you. And when the fire comes, you will be glad that you have the living water. You will be glad that you had Christ. For there will be no other Refuge. Remember Revelation 6, another scene of judgment? 
the wrath of the Lamb. And the people cry out to the rocks, fall on us, fall on us. And you will have a refuge and a fortress in Christ. Let's pray. We say with the church in Corinth, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We say with John in Revelation, the Spirit and the Bride, say come. And make us ready. If there are any here, any in our families, any in our circle of influence, who will not have a refuge on that day. Oh Lord, today is the day of salvation. Lead them. May they no longer mock the boat, but find safety with the few. Oh Lord, You have been so kind to us. Two sermons today on judgment. How can we not praise You that You have Saved us, though we we deserve it not. We are not smarter than other people. We are not better. Our kids are not godlier. Our marriages are not exemplary. We deserve the flood. We deserve the worm. We deserve the fire. But you have sovereignly placed us in Christ, given us the gift of faith that we can be your children. And we know and look forward to an inheritance unfading, imperishable, unspoiled. And you have given us salvation when we deserve judgment. Great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.